Her grandmother gives a cry of angry impatience. Everything belongs to your father now? It's how your grandfather arranged it years ago, and I didn't give a thought to how it might be for you when he died. It never occurred to me that your mother would die soon afterwards, or that your father would remarry. I must be grateful that he allows me to stay here, I suppose. A custodian of his treasures, which will all go to his son by that Frenchwoman. At least take the Merlin. He's been standing on the shelf in the Red Room for years, and nobody will miss him. Take it, Tegan. Always Tegan. Never the little name Tiggy that her friends use. She opens the passenger door and places the little figure, no more than six inches high, amongst the impedimenta on the seat. A rug, maps, some chocolate. Nestled in the warm folds of the rug, he stares forward, his profile as imperious and compelling as that of her grandmother. Tiggy settles him more firmly, shuts the door, and takes the frail old woman in her arms. Thank you, she says. You'll look after yourself, won't you? I might not be able to get away for a bit. For a moment, the old woman holds her tightly. Then she kisses her granddaughter and stands back. She is not demonstrative and the need to give the Merlin an impulsive but oddly necessary gesture has taken her by surprise. "'I'm glad you're going to Julia,' she says. "'Such a good friend. Give her my love.' "'Of course I will. I'll let you know I've arrived safely, but I might stop overnight on the way down, so don't worry about me.' "'I've long since given up worrying about my family,' is the tart response. "'Goodbye, darling.' She turns abruptly, crossing the gravel, and disappearing towards the house, leaving Tiggy to climb into the VW and set off down the drive. She's not hurt by that sudden departure. She knows quite well that they're both feeling churned up inside, and that, though she would never show it, her grandmother is near to tears. Has she guessed the truth? Tiggy shakes her head. Surely not. There has been no indication, no change in her grandmother's behaviour except right at the end in the giving of the bronze, an uncharacteristic neediness that absolutely required that gift should be accepted, overwhelming Tiggy's own strong instinct to reject utterly anything that belongs to her father. And after all, she tries to persuade herself now, the Merlin might have been collected in the first place by her grandfather. The Red Room has always been full of beautiful and unusual pieces, to which his son now continues to add. And this thought somehow makes it easier to accept one small object from among so many. Her grandfather, who had told her so many stories of Merlin and the court of King Arthur, would not have begrudged her this artefact from his collection. Odd now that at the time of her greatest need she should be travelling west. Julia lives a matter of miles from Tintagel. Of course you must come to us, she said. Oh, poor you, this is so awful. Losing Tom is bad enough, but look, of course you must come down to Triscairn straight away. Pete? Pete won't mind a bit. He's going to sea next week for three months, so he'll be delighted that I shall have some company. I don't fuss, Tiggy, just come whenever you're ready. Oswestry, Shrewsbury, Ludlow, Lemster. The miles are slowly eaten up beneath the trundling wheels. 
She stops on Wenlock Edge to make coffee and to give the Turk a run, and again at Hereford to fill up with petrol. They have an early lunch in the winding Wye Valley beside the river. And all the while, Tiggy is conscious of the wild, bleak country to the west and north, stretching away to Snowdonia, where Tom died four weeks earlier, attempting to complete the horseshoe under snow. Snow still lies on the black mountains and the Brecon beacons, and even here, deep in the valley, the wind is icy, and the February sun is a chilly glimmer in the veiled grey sky. Tom. She sees him clearly in her mind's eye, as he would have been now, lighting the little gas stove, filling the kettle, the tall, strong length of him leaning at the van's door with his hands in the pockets of his jeans, whistling beneath his breath. How he loved travelling, making plans through the short winter term for the long summer holidays, with maps spread over the floor of his small flat on the university campus, showing her the roads they would take, and discussing the places where they'd camp. Why did you decide to teach? she asked him. He took a few moments to answer, running his long brown fingers through his short dark hair, his light grey eyes thoughtful. Probably because I'd spent all my life in institutions, he answered. It seemed the natural thing to do. What about you? I love small children, she said. Perhaps it's because we never had families of our own, and not proper ones, anyway. We surround ourselves with other people, the more the merrier. But not always, he said. Sometimes I need to be alone, or at least away from the crowds. That's why I like climbing. Tiggy shivers as she bundles the Turk back into the van. The dandy Dinmont's large dark eyes gaze at her with bright intelligence, and Tiggy buries her head suddenly against the wiry coat, longing for Tom, and wondering if she'll have this sharp pain in her heart for the rest of her life. The initial disabling numbness, which at first had affected her whole body, has dwindled gradually into a hard central core of anguish. How does such grief work? And who can she ask? For years after her mother died, she felt slightly at a disadvantage with children of her own age. They knew things she didn't, hinted at behaviour she couldn't understand. Sometimes when she asked an outright question, they'd scream with embarrassed laughter. Slowly, she pieced together her experiences into a mosaic she could make sense of. For instance, her father's unexplained absences and her mother's tears, resulting in bitter words and long silences, began to make a pattern. Much later, remembering how she wakened to hear his footsteps crossing the landing to the au pair's bedroom, another shape in the picture fell into place. Some of the girls were told to go. They protested, drenched in tears, begging to stay, and talking of promises of marriage. Some were angry, shouting threats, whilst others looked frightened and ran away without giving notice. She never understood why, and some of them she missed terribly, but her father banished them all with a shrug and a shake of the head that said simply that women behaved inexplicably. It was nothing to worry about. It was a relief to reach an age where no more au pairs were needed. After all, 
She was away at school now for most of the year, and at her grandmother's home in Herefordshire for a great deal of the holidays. Then, one night, he came to her room, a glass of whiskey in his hand, swaying a little, as he watched her from the doorway as she sat brushing her hair. You've grown, haven't you? he said. Little Tegan, come and give your old pa a kiss. The ensuing scene was undignified and confusing. Eventually he withdrew, liberally splashed by his whiskey, and cursing beneath his breath. She decided to think no more about it, putting it down to his being lonely and drinking too much. On the second occasion he gave her some wine at dinner, and this time the struggle was grimly determined and frightening. The third time he struck her hard, knocking her to the floor, but she scrambled away from him in time to lock herself in her bathroom before he could catch her. She stayed there all night, and in the morning when he went to the gallery, she packed some things into a suitcase and telephoned Julia, her dearest, closest friend. "'Of course you must come,' she said at once. "'You don't want to spend the holidays alone in a flat in London? Oh, hang on a sec!' And as Julia consulted with her mother, Tiggy was able to hear the usual cheerful, reassuring sounds of Julia's family life in rural Hampshire. Siblings shouting and wailing, dogs barking, and her mother's warmly practical voice. Of course she can come and stay. Now do ask about trains, Julia. And all the while, Tiggy clutched the receiver, her knees trembling, lest her father should return unexpectedly. Only Julia knew the truth, though Tiggy guessed that her grandmother suspected something akin to it. Less than a year later, during which time Tiggy never stayed at the London flat unaccompanied, her father sold the London gallery, married his partner at the gallery in Paris, and moved to France. Six months later, their son was born. Now Tiggy slams the side door of the van and climbs into the driving seat hugging her long sheepskin coat around her. Tom bought the coat for her in the King's Road, and its all-embracing warmth reminds her of him. Once she met Tom, it seemed that her life had properly begun. Even the simple act of breathing took on a deeper, fuller quality. Whilst lovemaking, something to be avoided since her father's forced fumblings, became with Tom a joyful and fulfilling delight. Knowing Tom, travelling with him in the old orange camper, loving him, had given her exactly the same sensation as the warmth and light the sun bestows when it breaks out from behind dark, rain-heavy clouds. Her muscles relaxed at last. She grew supple and free and at peace. His love enabled her, encouraging without attempting to possess her. His friendship showed her unexplored paths of knowledge and discovery. Now she must learn to do without it. The little Merlin stares resolutely forward, showing the way. Tiggy switches on the engine and drives up onto the road leading to Chepstow and the Severn Bridge. To the west.